0: The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, back from a long weekend in Florida where I accidentally got to swim with manatees. This was not a planned activity. My friends and I just happened to be in the ocean and they happened to swim up to us. It was maybe one of the coolest things to ever happen to me at the beach and totally made up for the fact that I forgot to pack in my beach bag the book I was reading. Speaking of books... Today's author has written a few and his latest, Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, will be in stores in January 2024. Dr. Bruce Piasecki is the founder and chair of a global management consulting firm, AHC Group, and a New York Times bestselling author of 19 books on shared value and the social response to capitalism. He comes to us via this season's most prolific guest booker, our friend and previous guest, Dr. Ed Maybach. We talk about Bruce's book and the Venn diagram between tech innovators, government, and the marketplace. Listeners, that's coming up next. Listeners, welcome back to the show. Super excited to be in conversation today with author Bruce Piasecki. Bruce, welcome to the show.
2: My delight, Chelsea.
1: So let's um, let's jump right in. And, um, you know, as the listeners heard in the intro, you wrote the book Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, which will be coming to bookshelves near you, listeners, in January of 2024. So give us a preview. What What themes do you explore in this book and what compelled you to want to write it?
2: So the framework of the book is based on the fact that I worked at the beginning of my career 40 years ago for the White House in their Council of Environmental Technology. And then when I formed my corporation, the AHC Group, in 1981, I was appointed still somewhat in government on EPA's Executive Advisory Council. Since I've been working for a third of the world's largest companies um, in corporate strategy, like Merck, and now helping BP transform. So I worked for five years for 40 people at Merck with a team of 10 in my firm. And often it's very complex change management assumptions. So what I wanted to give the reader and the listener of your podcast is um, a career summary book about competitive principles. Since I competed in um, the Fred Flintstone pace of government, I also competed outside of that Stone VW in corporate settings. I'm now on several corporate boards, which I can reveal a couple of them. So the, the bottom line of the book is you cannot solve the climate crisis only with government mandates. And that that only sharpens half of the pair of scissors. We've been sharpening that half of the pair of scissors since uh, the time of Al Gore and before he wrote Earth and the Balance. And he has become more strident and isolated. What I tried to do is stay central to corporate strategy and jump on a large elephant of social change that I'll tell you about. So to cut through the issues of energy innovation and climate innovation and all of the greenhouse gas emitters that we see in transportation and big pharma and in hospitals, uh, we need to be more clever than simply pro regulation we cannot strangle the neck of innovation throughout the world, and particularly in America, where we leave the world in higher education on innovation. And we need to, in my book, realize the inherent power in the private and the corporate wealth of the world.
1: Well, I feel like I heard this expression numerous times where moving the federal government is like trying to turn... Um, you know, a a battleship, a wartime battleship. You know, the federal government is clunky. Nothing happens fast. And yes, it is great when they can commercialize a new innovative product, but getting to that point can take a long time. So we have to unleash the competitiveness of of the private markets, of the private capital.
2: One of my clients has been Lockheed Martin over the years, and they really understand the federal government. They do understand, through um, a a series of engineers and bright executives, how to uh, respond to DARPA, the the, uh, Advanced Acceleration Program. I've argued before um, Congress and before uh, federal agency heads that we need DARPA models when it comes to climate change. So there are elements of the federal government that move slow and, and, and bureaucratically. And that's why I used to teach MBAs and say, some of you will live in the stone VW of um, you know, and move slowly up a hill of important change, especially for public health and aging. However, many of you, 83% of you getting your MBAs will live in the corporate sector, mostly in small innovative firms, but some in the giant firms that I've worked for. So I think the essence, Chelsea, is that we we need both government and the private sector. But then I add a third circle, which is the circle of technical innovation. And what's beautiful about those people is like, if you think of something like a very stellar example, Apple, Apple, has come out with a new iPhone that has allowed them to be so popular that they're half of the purchases of iPhones now in the world, even lower income and middle income people buy iPhones. And you have to ask, how do they do that against the pressure of the market? Because their prices increase and they design these things like a NASA device that you can drop it from a hundred feet and it won't break. Right? So, They do it because they understand the tempo of technological change. So if you think of three intersecting circles in your podcast series, I've heard people speak from each of the circles. In the middle is the marketplace. And sometimes the marketplace should be by far the biggest circle. To the left of that market is technical innovators, like the people who stay up at night in their garage, (laughs) finding a new cell phone or finding a new component for the IT economy. And then on the far right is the role of government. We are offering the reader an exciting new glimpse at a narrative of business in society, where business is not against society, but business is in society and making major change. Um, Just like personal people that you've sometimes interviewed, like the people up in, um, I think it was Portland, who were, and and also people in Florida, that were public entities helping government accelerate its work. You need all three circles.
1: Well, and business in society is a really important distinction from business and society. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is, I feel like we're in this weird vortex right now where there is a lot of capitalism bashing, but then I sort of see the other side of that being the ESG bashing. And so how can we kind of reconcile what have now become really um, partisan attitudes? There is good in capitalism, right? The alternative, not so great. Um, And then also when it comes to something like having... Um, sustainability goals for some of these big corporate um, interests that you've worked with and for, I feel like they're doing exactly what a free marketplace wants you to do. They are responding to pressure from their board, from their customers, from society to be more environmental. There's no one forcing them to move in that direction. And so you know, you kind of see those two extremes. And I'm curious where, what you yeah. think, how, how do we fix this problem? Yeah,
2: If if people uh, take the time to read this 192 page short book, Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, they'll see that I'm speaking from personal experience, right? And they'll see how I navigated uh, government and, and how my firm excelled. So, When you get down to essences, Chelsea, most business success depends on the smart alignment of money, people, and rules. And that the beauty of global capitalism, even though it has its faults, is that it gives some freedom and some guidance to people to smartly align money, people, and rules. So how you define your staff, its functions, its accountability trails, is the first high-octane fuel in the engine of business success. And I'm happy to say that my firm, of its 41 years, had every year profitable except for one when I was hiring too many people. (laughs) In short, how you manage your people and find brilliant deputies is the purpose of this book. I'm hoping to help new business leaders and middle-sized business readers read my 18 principles of competition in the book so that they could structure and differentiate their organization against the competitors or with the competitors because partnership is a part of solving the climate change. And I think in my firm, the people element was critical. So I started my journey aligning money, people, and rules with few funds. So that's another miracle that I experienced and wanted to reflect in the book. My company was never debt Rich. It was always debt avoidance. I come from an Eastern European background. I, my mother, I did not have a father. My father died when I was three. And so I didn't have um, oversight over it. And I had a very accepting uh, woman as a wife who's a continental thinker, more European, more Eastern European. She's actually Sicilian American. And so what I wanted the reader to know is that wealth is found in people that you select to work with in social networks and even in professional communities. When I went back and I read the reviews of some of my prior books, one of their weaknesses is I didn't talk enough about social networks or social movements.
1: Well, I do think social movements are are important because, you know, back to the ESG thing, that is what drives, it's what drives change, but it has to be done In a smart way. And I feel like this has come up a lot in the last year where we've seen um, more the activism side, right? And so a friend of mine was in New York at a Broadway thing this week. And it's uh, at the time of recording, it's uh, Climate Week in New York. And some protester came in and made a bunch of noise and yelled. And she said she couldn't even understand what they were saying. And then they hung a banner but they hung it so that really only the performers on the stage could see it nobody who was sitting in the seats could see it and she was sort of laughing like okay i think this was supposed to be a big moment a big disruption moment but really none of us know what they are here to talk about and it was a it was a you know climate declare climate emergency type of of um Protest, And we've seen people throwing tomato soup on fine art. We've seen all these other things. And I think that gives the social movement part kind of a bad name when people take these more um, extreme disruptor types of paths toward getting their right across.
2: Yeah, and what I write about in the book, Chelsea, is the creative force that's potential in team building with the NGOs as opposed to that intrusive, disruptive part. And so I also talk uh, in the book about how there's a battle going on in capitalism. It's not settled, like you mentioned ESG. And there are the speculative capitalists, and then there are what I call in my book social response capitalists. So, for example, Unilever has successfully employed people in 189 countries because they have a reputation of attracting the best talent and the best brands to buy them. So Unilever has been doing this for 30 years. I have often worked for American-based multinationals that are trying to learn how to be social response capitalists. And what I mean by that is they compete on talent, distribution, quality, price of the product, and also new product entry. And so in my book, Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, I tell stories about those people. It's not just myself. It's about the leaders and the CEOs and their teams that I've gotten to work with. So there is a paradox in invest, advancing corporations. You cannot do it without the neighborhood of the staff of the corporations. And so my book uh, has a great long case study on train technologies. And I argue that train technologies has a five-fingered approach to corporate change. The first is internal hiring and training. They're excellent at bringing new kinds of people inside the corporate mansion, and they're now fifty thousand people. They also have um, a brilliance in partnerships with other companies and alliances. So they have, uh, in the book, I write about what's called the Gigaton Project that they started with Walmart and other companies. It's it exists since about. Five years ago, when their CEO and chairman uh, initiated the problem at uh, the program at Train. And it now it involves 21 million metric tons of CO2 avoided in the last six years, not five years, but six years. And it involves detailed programs in 30 different countries where they're selling what can best be conceived by your listeners as next generation solutions but they're selling them in the current market.
0: We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at RepublicEN.org. Now back to this week's episode.
1: You know, to the young um, people and listeners have definitely heard me say this, um, the young people in my life, I have a 19-year-old and a 22-year-old and their friends and friends' kids You know, they obviously have a lot of climate anxiety because they've been hearing about um, climate change pretty much since they can remember. And one night in particular, I was at my good friend's house and their teenager who was, you know, 16 was saying, well, there's no point. There's just no point. We're all going to die. You know, really kind of gloom and doom. And I said, you know what? Here is why I don't feel that way. There is money to be made in solving climate change. So it's going to happen, right? And uh, it might happen. You know, it, it, what is it? Winston Churchill who said Americans will always do the right thing once they've exhausted all other options. Um, you know, it might take us a while. With what you were saying earlier about government, government can be clunky and slow things down. But if we do lean in on this, um, the three circles, then I think we can definitely get this done. And you know, there's a question that. So we hate it at Republican.org. We hate it, especially when the media asks people and they're usually asking Republican lawmakers, do you believe in climate change? Because as Dr. Catherine Hayhoe says, gravity doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. If you jump off a building, you're going to fall or you jump off the cliff, you're going to fall. Climate change exists, right? And so instead we think the question should be, can free enterprise solve climate change? And I feel like everything that you're saying today um, gives me a resounding yes to that. Question. Well,
2: my book is about the grounds for hope and the 18 competitive principles. We do have to overcome some prejudices we have about NGOs or even corporations, you know, where some people easily think of them as just robber barons or birds of prey. And there's all kinds of different corporations. So referring to the beautiful detail of your 19 and 22 year old, I'd like your listeners to know that I'm the proud father of a doctor who just got her first appointment after many years of study as an internist at St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver. And after that residence, she's going to wind up at Harvard's Spalding to work on spinal and brain injury. And I've talked with her and her many doctor friends about climate anxiety. In fact, my wife and I are so lucky in life that we've founded a Three years ago, when I turned 65, we created a foundation called the Creative Force Foundation. So, for example, this Friday, we're giving an award to a woman who wrote a handbook on environmental advocacy with a set of inclusiveness in mind. Because we think that too often um, environmental solutions in the the big 10 environmental groups are advocated by wealthy whites, right? Right. And so this particular person, Lisa, um, is a wonderful new generation writer. And we give these away in Australia, New Zealand. We gave one away to a a book that I want your listeners to consider if they're suffering climate climate anxiety, and it's a book called Warmth, W-A-R-M-T-H. The gentleman is from, his name is Daniel Sherrill, S-H-E-R-R-I-L-L, and our six. Judges found him for this $5,000 award, and Daniel came up to Albany and received a check from a very famous American writer called Jay Perini uh, in front of 500 other writers in our capital, Albany. So we try and make a big thing out of this foundation grant. I recommend his book for anybody less than 35. We give the award to anybody less than 40 because he struggles with, do I even want to have a child? in the book. He's, he's a beautiful writer, almost like uh, a modern day Henry David Thoreau. Climate anxiety is real. So for example, I um, sit on an advisory board called the Medical Consortium on Climate and Public Health. It runs out of Stanford and it runs out of George Mason Hospitals with our chairman coming from uh, Lisa Patel, Dr. Lisa Patel from Stanford, and our business head, Um, uh, on the board of directors is Bill Novelli, who was the CEO of ARP. And so every 90 days, we debate this issue of how to influence the Fred Flintstones in government. And for six years, we helped advocate the Inflation Reduction Act. So I want to signal to those with climate anxiety that even government is moving forward. So this is the way I'd like to think about climate anxiety and add a little adventure in my book. So during the course of the book, I talk about why it's so hard to understand the grounds for hope, and it's because there's a giant elephant in social history with two front legs and two back legs. The front legs are market pricing and policy. Those are the things that people see, and as the elephant steps forward, it rumbles through the neighborhood and causes a big sound like an elephant does in in walking Well. Those of us who've had the privilege of hearing the backfeed, the backfeed are investment trends and corporate strategy. Now, probably you have to own a lot of stock to see how investment and efficiency pays off over time. It's a compounding value. It's a momentum play and it's a value play at the same time. Uh, And my book is very much talking about that back leg of investment and where it's moving. My book is also talking about something that maybe only 3% of Americans get to see And that is the invitation up the stairwell of corporate strategy, where you'll have a CEO, a CFO, a general counsel, normally six corporate functions that I've worked for. And that back leg is practically invisible to the press, is practically invisible to government regulators. And yet the good news that's overcoming climate anxiety is that this elephant is moving forward. Now, some with a despairing temperament will say it might not be moving forward fast enough. But I think that the grounds for hope is to realize that all four of these legs are being synced now by many different advocates, by many different intelligent podcasts like your own. Last week, I was on newsweek.com podcast. Yesterday, I was on a Paris podcast. So if you think about how it used to take Nine months for one of my books to be even picked up for review, in in print media. Today the stuff is instant, and so there are intelligent people asking about the, this elephant even before the book comes out. You can pre-order it on Amazon. You could pre-order it in Rodan Press, right? But you're not going to get it until the new year, after the holidays, because that's what the publisher wants. So to make a long story short, uh, Daniel Sherrill's book is available now. Warmth, and it's in paperback. It won the New Yorker Book of the Year uh, three years ago when we gave the award, not because of our award, Chelsea, because it's a beautifully written and argued book.
1: When we get off of this podcast recording, I'm going to go order Warmth, and I'm going to pre-order Wealth and Climate Competitiveness, as I uh, recommend our listeners to do as well um, as an uh, an author to be myself I will just put in a little pitch for how important pre-orders are um, when you were talking about how in the old days and my father is also an author so I know this right the the timeline was just different way right? the business was different and now you can pre-order on Amazon you can already pre-order my book on Amazon um, oh beautiful
2: and so, the title under on, under Amazon you'll tell us right
1: I will tell you, it is glacial um, inside story of climate politics. So, yeah, it's it, those pre-orders are important because they show uh, early buzz to the publisher. And, you know, it's all about money. They they want to make money and they want us to make money. So
2: it's the way it should be. I could tell you that having written 20 <laughs> books that came out, 10 of them were not huge commercial successes. They were books that established expertise. But The New York Times and USA Today bestseller that I did is called Doing More With Less and was about Ben Ben Franklin's values to the new century. It just came out again in Spanish, right? But what I learned from that, Chelsea, is what I replicate in this book on wealth and climate. It has to be short in today's attention span. It has to be dramatic and persuasive. It has to have different voices, in it. it can't just be the author It has to be what's happening in social history. And in my case, it has to be aiming for hope. It has to be giving people reasons to make money and be hopeful about the near future. So I'd like to tell you that there is also a chapter in this book. To give you extremes, because I feel you have to have a philosophy or a framework about aligning money and people and rules, there's one chapter on BP the giant oil company that's transforming itself. And then there's another chapter on Hood, the 700-year tale from England about robbing from the rich to give to the poor. So I'm going to help the reader think about both those extremes, how uh, an oil giant is changing. And I've worked on and off for BP across four of their CEOs. So it's not just about Bernard Looney, but it's also about Robin Hood and about what we can take in understanding how to change our own lifestyle, our own companies, our own behavior in, in, in the way of intelligent capitalism. The last thing I'd like to say about the book and then open it up to your final concerns is um, I've learned from working with all my CEOs, you know, having worked for many of them, smart brevity is critical. I hope you can tell by this interview, although I can embellish and tell narratives, Each of the passages, there's only 18 short passages in the book because we wanted to write a manifesto for those people that haven't spent 30 years on the problem like I have. We wanted to write something that could be absorbed in one plane flight, one long rail trip, even a vacation in half a day. And so you'll see that wealth and climate is a uh, is a quick read, but it's also a provocative read.
1: Well, we're looking forward to getting our hands on a copy. And we appreciate you not only um, taking time to write this manifesto in a way that is going to grab our attention and hold our very short attention spans, but um just taking on these topics. It's it's important and I think um it will be really helpful as we move the elephant forward. And so thank you for all your time too on today's episode and I hope we can have you back after the book is out and you've had some, we've had some reactions to it. Um, I think that would be really fun to check back in with you at that time.
2: I commit to that, Chelsea, and keep up the good work. It's nice to be able to weigh in on a weekly basis with your work.
1: Hi, I'm Chelsea Henderson, host of the Eco Right Speaks podcast. In a world where conservative voices rarely meet environmental discussions, Green Tea Party Radio is a breath of fresh air with your hosts, Hannah, Zach, and Katie. Get ready for insightful dialogues that break the mold.
0: As conservatives, we're passionate about the environment, the free market, and our faith. But finding our place in this conversation isn't always easy, and that's why we're here. Join us every week as we explore how conservative values intersect with tackling climate change, promoting energy independence, and creating new clean energy sector jobs.
1: Green Tea Party Radio is more than a show, it's a movement that connects young American conservatives aged 16 to 25.
0: We're not just discussing problems, we're providing solutions. So if you're tired of the same old narratives, it's time to embrace something different. Pour the tea, ignite the conversation, and join us on a journey of discovery and action. Don't miss Green Tea Party Radio, coming
1: soon to a college radio station near you, or subscribe to the Green Tea Party Radio podcast. Check out the Green Tea Party Radio Patreon group for early access, special content, merch, and more. Visit greenteapartyradio.com. Together, let's reshape the future. Woohoo! Price, it's always good to. Talk to a an author, um, as I will soon be one. I will soak up any advice that I could get, and I thought Bruce had a lot of really useful information.
0: Yeah, I mean, he certainly ran the gamut uh, and gave you a full pulse of what his book is about. But uh, not to shy away from his book or books, it got me really excited about your upcoming book, and I can hear I could hear that twinge of excitement in your voice uh, talking to a fellow author.
1: Well, yes, that was very exciting, and it still feels really far away. But if you look at my book on Amazon, it's you can't pre-order the book book yet, but you can pre-order the um, audio book. Which I don't know why you can pre-order the audio book and not the full book, but it's just sort of feels like yes, it's coming, and you know, off tape. Bruce was very helpful and gave me good advice. And so he's someone I look forward to keeping good contacts with.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. And I appreciate Bruce for joining us this week and appreciate some of our new members signing up. Caroline B. in North Carolina, Warren B. in Tennessee, Mark I. in Florida, Annika B. in Idaho, and Kate S. in Switzerland. Yes. Switzerland. (laughs) I love it. Switzerland. (laughs) The global reach is (laughs) intensifying, Chelsea.
1: Hey, we are for real. We have hit the European continent.
0: (laughs) Yes, we have. Speaking of, what do we have ahead next week?
1: So keeping it here domestic, um, as we usually do. Um, we are going to speak to the three hosts of Green Tea Party Radio. So, you know, we've been plugging their new podcast pretty hard here. I was mm-hmm. a guest on that show. Um, listeners could um can hear me if they don't have enough of me already. Um, so just talking to them about how they got the idea to put their show together and how a little check-in, how things are going and You know, this is all priming me up for my future retirement. So once they're up Mm -hmm. and going, (laughs) then I will, you know, I'm many years from actually being able to retire, but I do like to dream still. So
0: (laughs) your mentoring knows no bounds, Chelsea.
1: Oh, well, I'm not doing a lot for them, but I am a big cheerleader. So looking forward to sharing that conversation with our listeners.
0: Well, don't forget to stand with us at Republican.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds. And hit that subscribe button wherever it is. You get your podcast every single week, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Spreaker, you name it. There are ways to listen to us every single week. So we come to you Tuesday with a new episode, and we will do so until the end of this year. If you want to go and find them on our website, it's real easy as well, republican.org forward slash podcast Chelsea. But until next week, I can't wait. Have a great week, weekend, and we will do it again next week, friend.
1: See you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local Eco Right Leader.